Good morning. Let's ask God to give us clarity on the passage, to see Him clearly, and even more specifically, to give us an understanding of the relationship that we will have with God in the eternal realm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bring great clarity to our hearts and minds this morning. That we would, in the midst of our daily struggles and routines, be able to cast our eyes upon the eternal realm to see this home that you are making for us, this place where you will dwell with your people, where we will have full access where you will be glorified perfectly, where we will be perfect worshipers of you for all eternity. I ask, Lord, that you would show us this vision from the Apostle John and cause it to stir in us a deep hope, not only in the reality of our future in Christ, but to live in light of that truth right now, that we might be a people truly set apart, living holy lives for your glory each and every day. We know it's hard, Father. We, we battle sin. We battle temptation. We desire our own glory, oftentimes more than yours. But you can change that by the power of your Spirit. I ask that you would use your word this morning to do that great work in us. Transform us to be the brilliant light that you have called and enabled us to be. Father, I pray for this grace, and it is pure grace. We are not deserving of it, but we are happy to receive it. And so be gracious with us this morning, I pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. Most people, regardless of your upbringing, believe that relationships are important. We strive to have good relationships. Um, if, you're, if you struggle in relationships with people at work or, let's say, a neighbor, that can be troubling. But if you struggle in a relationship with someone that you really love, that you're close to, a spouse or a child or a brother and sister in Christ, that can, that can make life at times almost unlivable. So we know how important those relationships are. The Bible says that the most important relationship that you, you can have and are supposed to have is with God. The most important relationship in your life is to be with God. And so when that relationship is not going well, it, it causes turmoil in this life and potentially turmoil in the next. The passage that we're going to look at today actually deals with the future relationship we are destined in Christ to have with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the eternal realm. It is a passage that is steeped in relational intimacy, God with his people. We, we, we get to Revelation 21 and we'll end in Revelation 22, and this is the end of, of the redemptive story. It is a glorious ending, and it's one that I know many of you have been longing to get to for weeks as we've made our way through all the trials and tribulations of the judgment cycles. We're here, though, and, and we're at that point now where all evil has been 
put away, locked away forever in the eternal lake of fire, all evil. And John has already seen the new heaven and the new earth, and he's seen the new Jerusalem, and he's seen God's people. And last week we had a chance to look at some verses that painted this picture. It was a, almost a surreal picture of this home that God is making for himself and his people here on this new earth. And he identified it as the, the city of God or the new Jerusalem. And it was intended, and I hope you were last week by Kirk's sermon, it was so over the top, the, the, the terminology is so over the top, it's intended to, to incite your senses to excitement and encouragement and joy. And if it did not, then, then you probably weren't listening that closely, because just the reading of it should cause your heart to be stirred at the majesty and the power of God and this new home that he's making for you, his people, the church. In verses 22 to 27, which we'll look at today, John's vision continues, but it becomes very specific. Instead of talking about the the structure of this new home that we'll have, it talks specifically about the relationship between God and his people and and what that that relationship will look like and what life will, will be like. We have lots of weird ideas about the eternal realm and life with God. I hope that this passage will bring some clarity to it. Fundamentally, what we're going to see from the passage is perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect intimacy with God. You, if you're in Christ, enjoying that forever and ever. I could say amen and walk off the pulpit. That's sufficient, I think, if it is in fact true, and I believe this passage reveals that it is true. We will have full access to God, unfettered, complete access to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God will be perfectly glorified as he rightly deserves because he's God and he'll be perfectly worshipped by you, the church, because you will be made to worship God perfectly in Christ. It is a, it is a passage filled with joy and excitement and encouragement. Um, but even more so than that, it, it has the power, if you're willing, to transform it has the power to change you. You know, this thing we do called preaching and you hearing the word preached, it's not complicated. You're supposed to hear, if, I, if I'm faithful to the text, you're supposed to hear God speak through me and you're supposed to receive that word and you're supposed to be changed by it. And if that happens, then that's true worship. And so by God's grace, you will hear well today and be rightly changed today and in so doing, you will worship God today. Amen? I have three points I want to share with you that I think will help us be transformed. I want us to consider from God's word three things. Number one, your perfect access to God in the New Jerusalem. Your perfect access to God. Number two, God's perfect glory in the New Jerusalem. And number three, God's perfect worshipers. Hint, hint, that's the church. That's you if you're part of the church. Um, There are several themes that could be drawn from this, but one I landed on last night was that we are to be changed in this life by the promise of the next. Our relationships here in this life with God, with one another, with our brothers and sisters can be changed if we rightly fix our hope on that promise of the relationship with God in the next. So let's look at our first point. Your perfect access to God in the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. John's still speaking. The vision is still coming. And he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And when he says, I saw no temple, he means I saw no physical temple. I saw no building and no structure. Now, this would have been considered very, very odd in light of the history of Jerusalem, God's people, and the temple. From the days of Solomon all the way up to 70 A.D. in the destruction of the temple, the temple defined Jerusalem. It was the centerpiece of the culture and the community. In fact, to to be a God worshiper without a temple at that time was impossible. Now, John's writing about 20 years or so after the destruction of the temple, and certainly the the churches in Asia Minor and, and most likely Christians at that time in the Mediterranean basin, they would have expected this vision to include a physical temple. A, a, a physical temple coming down from heaven greater than that of Solomon's. And the reason they would have expected that is because they believed and they understood that temples were contact points between heaven and earth. A temple in the in, in ancient times, and even in many countries today that worship false gods, a temple was that place where people were able to commune with God. They would go to a place, and they would worship God, and they'd pray to God, and they would sacrifice to these supposed divine creatures. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Paul said when you are worshiping in a, in a temple to a false god, you are actually worshiping a demon. We know that. But those who worship the one true living God, those who worship Yahweh, at least before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they, they worshiped in that place they believed God came to commune with mankind. That special place designated by God to be with his people here on earth. But instead of seeing another building, another temple, John says, I saw no temple in the city. And he, and he says that for good reason. He's actually seeing what the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied to centuries before, that there would not be this physical temple, that in fact the new Jerusalem would be the location and God himself would be the temple. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 3, speaking of the new creation in the end days, the prophet said, In those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again At that time, that's in the new creation, the prophet said, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, most of you have some understanding of the Ark of the Covenant, hopefully more so than what you learned in watching Indiana Jones. Um, The Ark of the Covenant, as we know, it it contained the Ten Commandments, it had Aaron's staff, it had a, a little bit of manna in a pot from the desert wanderings, but the the Ark of the Covenant was considered the very, very specific place where God would come down and commune with his people. And it was located in in Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple. It was located in what was called the holiest of holies, the inner sanctuary. And that was was curtained off. There was a thick curtain that that veiled the the Ark of the Covenant where God would come and descend. And, and the, the holiest of holies was separated from what was known as the court of the priests. And the court of the priests was separated from the court of the Jews. And the court of the Jews was separated from the court of the women. And the court of the women was separated from the court of the Gentiles. In other words, there was very limited access to God in the physical temple. So limited, actually, that only one person, one day, the high priest on The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was allowed to enter into the Holiest of Holies to offer a sacrifice for himself and the people. And and that not without great ritual washing of the high priest as he would go in and 
come out. In other, in other words, under the old system, access to God was extremely limited. And then we get this picture here of this new Jerusalem where there is no physical temple. All the barriers and all the courts and all the things that kept the holiness of God away from sinful man because in sinful man in the presence of the holiness of God leads to death. All these things are gone. The multiple types of sacrifices, all the rituals of purification to protect man from God in the new Jerusalem, they do not exist. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. John said, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No building, no courts, no curtain, no special priests on special days offering special sacrifices for man to access God. You have access to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all eternity. It's an incredible thought. It is a transformative thought, I believe. John tells us that the heavenly temple will be God the Father and God the Son dwelling with us with unfettered access you have with God if you're in Christ. No obstructions, no dividing lines because the lamb sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, we know what happened, right? The veil was torn in two and the access to the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic for access to God, was made to the world, Jew and Gentile, to all those who would come to Christ. He paid for our sins in full, guaranteeing for those in Christ full access to God in the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. It's such an extraordinary statement. Ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man, man has been denied access from the very real persistent presence of God Almighty. But in the new creation, his presence and his glory permeates the city. It permeates the earth. It permeates the heaven. You won't be able to get away from it. What a horrible thing. You won't be able to get away from the presence and the glory and majesty of God. How incredible for us. What a blessing for us to worship and serve God without barrier or without obstruction. I want you to imagine for a minute all the people in your life, your most favorite people, or, or even people maybe that you'd want to be friends with. Imagine that your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters in Christ, family and friends, maybe some of your favorite actors or musicians, maybe some of your favorite theologians or authors. Imagine if you had today complete access to those people. You had full access to them. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Snap at your fingers and you're in their presence. Enjoying them and they're enjoying you. And not only do you have full access to them, but you know them intimately and they know you intimately. Imagine what life would be like if we weren't, didn't have to spend so much time scheduling a 30-minute appointment three weeks from now. Imagine if our primary mode of communication was not text or email or, or some other means of social media, but actually face-to-face -face contact regularly and freely. Kind of hard for us, even harder for us today than a couple generations ago. Imagine on a Monday morning you decide for breakfast you're going to hang out with Ben Shapiro and Albert Muller and have some interesting dialogue. And you can do that just by snapping your fingers. Imagine that. Imagine in the afternoon you say, you know what, I'm going to have a reunion today. I'm going to have all my family and all my friends and I'm at the church over and we're going to enjoy time together today and I can snap my fingers and we will be together. 
Imagine you say, you know what, for dinner tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hearken back on some of the older theologians. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out with Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and Owen and Edwards and Spurgeon and even Martin Lloyd-Jones can join us and we're just going to supper together. All without obstruction, all without barrier, all without notification or invitation or scheduling. Now imagine you having that same access to the one who made all the people you love most, to the creator of the universe. It is a thought so overwhelming, it should cause you to long for it. John wants us to fix our eyes on the new Jerusalem because that's where the Lord is, and that's where the Lord wants to be with you, and that's the access that he gives you, full, unfettered access in the presence of God forever and ever. Now, if that's true, my beloved, I think that we can reasonably agree that we can stop spending so much time and so much energy trying to be accepted and gaining access to whatever group it is you think you need to be a part of to bring yourself the identity you think you need to have. I think we can stop all that energy and time that we put in trying to be liked or accepted into that group at work or, or with your neighbors or at school. You can stop spending so much time posting and commenting, following those influencers. I hate that term, by the way. Following those influencers on social media so you can be part of what? Part of that in-group so you can talk about these people and what they said. And people go, oh, you know, they must be, they must be knowledgeable. They're part of that inside group. I know social media did not create the need to be liked or accepted, but it certainly magnified, I think, for all the world to see man's desperate desire to be on the inside rather than on the outside. Such a desperate need to be part of an inside group. Sin put us on the outside. It put us outside the garden. It separated us from God and from Christ, but through Christ and his death on the cross, that curtain was torn, and now we have access. We've been invited in by the Son And not just in, we've been invited all the way in to have total access to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all eternity for all those who have repented and put their faith in Christ. You've been invited to the most exclusive gathering, the most exclusive group to have an audience with none other than the creator of the universe to have unfettered access to the presence of the Almighty God, to know and be known by Him. It's worth an amen, and maybe two. The great part about this teaching from this passage, it's not just unfettered access you're going to have with God. You might say, that's sufficient, I need no more, and you might be right. In the New Jerusalem, in Christ, you will get to participate and experience God's full glory. When I mean full glory... He's infinite, so we're never going to see the infinite aspect of it. We're not going to be able to touch that as finite creatures, but it will be unfettered. It will be without sin. There will be no obstruction to it. So first, full access to God. Point number two, participating in God's perfect glory in the New Jerusalem. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, John said, so there's no temple. And then John says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, this is John is drawing directly from Isaiah chapter sixty, which is describing something very similar, and that is that that God is the source 
of illumination. You say, what do you mean by illumination? Not just physical light, of course that's part of it, but God is the source of knowledge, God is the source of satisfaction, the source of purpose, the source of joy. All that we need to be illuminated fully, it is God and comes from God. So not the sun and not the moon as we, as we know from Genesis chapter 1, this idea that the glory of God the Father and God the Son in the New Jerusalem will be the eternal illuminating light that mankind needs Isaiah, when speaking in the new creation, he, he put it like this, Isaiah 60, verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God, listen, your God will be your glory. Your God will be your glory, your God will be your light. And so, so that we're really careful here, just as we saw earlier in the chapter, when John said there will be no more sea, and we think, oh, a waterless new creation, um, we said, no, that the sea means chaos and death. So too here, when it says no more sun or moon for light, it doesn't mean that the new creation will be without a sun or a moon. Again, that would be weird if we're talking about the restoration of, of what is, the good that God made. It means, and of course you probably get that, it, it means there'll be no ne- more need for it. In fact, it says though, there's no need for the sun or the moon because God provides the illumination. God provides that light. In fact, our Lord in John chapter 8, he was teaching in the temple, and he actually alludes to the same idea. Listen to what Jesus said in the temple. Speaking to the crowds, he said, I am what? I am the light of the world. Christ claims that. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in the new Jerusalem, where God's glory is on full display, There'll be no confusion on how to live a holy life. There'll be no more more tension between the spirit and the flesh, which we experience now in that Romans 7 sense. There'll be no more struggle between walking in the light and walking in the darkness. You know the battle I'm talking about. I'm talking about that day-to-day battle you as a Christian know. You, You know that God commands and wants you to spend time with him in prayer, but you'd rather take that time, what, and and watch TV or or be online in some capacity you know god wants you to be pure in thought but you lust and you covet that which you do not have you know your spirit knows that you are to serve others but you focus more on your own needs sometimes exclusively day after day week after week this battle between the spirit and the flesh is really between god's glory and your own glory it's between what god wants and what you want but this will not take place in the new jerusalem In the New Jerusalem, you've been made holy by the blood of the Lamb. You've been washed. You've been made clean. So your desire will be God's desire. Your desire will be to glorify and worship God alone. You'll know how to walk in the light. You'll know how to be holy. Not only will you know how, but you will desire that above all else. No more tension between the glory of God and the glory of man because it will be the glory of God that man desires to seek most and forever. Look at verse 24. By its light, that's by the light of the glory of God, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, into the city, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And so this, the picture is this, it's, uh, this grand eschatological pilgrimage where all the redeemed of all mankind for all human history are coming into 
rushing into the presence of the living God. And, and we know, that, so pilgrimages, we know um, there are still many that, that go on today. We know that the Buddhists go to Bodh Gaya. We know that Muslims go to Mecca. Um, for centuries, Jews, they had three annual pilgrimages they needed to make to Jerusalem, to the temple. Um, but this, this is a, a pilgrimage of, of the greatest kind ever, where all people of all nations, in fact, all the kings of those nations are going to be coming into the city and they're going to be bringing all that is good and all that is right and all that is pure. They're going to be bringing it before God and presenting it to God. Not because God needs it. God is sufficient in his own glory. They're going to be bringing it to him to honor him because it was God who what? It was God who made all things new. So all the good that we see in the new creation, whether it be the heavens or the earth, or all those redeemed by Christ, we'll be able to come into the new Jerusalem and present ourselves and all creation to God say, look what you've done. You've made all things new. We ruined it with sin, but you made it new. And here it is, and they will come day after day. And it will be day after day. For it says the gates will never be shut. They don't have to be shut. You say, what does that even mean? Um, in ancient times, cities would build walls in order to protect themselves, and they'd have gates. And at nighttime, they would shut the gates because that's when robbers would come in and, and try to bring harm to the city. They'd also shut gates if a foreign invader was going to try to invade the city. But there is no night here. And again, I, I think there's going to be real night. It means there's no night, and that night was equivalent to evil and darkness, Right? But that's not going to be the case in the New Jerusalem. So the gates can be open all the time, which means people can come and go all the time. And in the ancient world, merchants would come and they would, they would bring things of value and they would trade goods and services. And, and many would come and they'd, they'd bring gifts to honor a governor or a local prince or a king. And that will be taking place, we're told, in the New Jerusalem, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And that's what John sees, people streaming in. Look at verse 26. Streaming into the new Jerusalem to glorify God. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. It is a picture of all mankind in a perpetual state. Perpetual being for all eternity. A perpetual state of glorifying God. Not themselves, Not creation independent of what God has done, but glorifying God and God alone. Praising God, honoring God for who he is and for what he's done. You say, well, that sounds interesting. That sounds like Genesis chapter 1. That sounds why God created us in the very beginning. Is it not? He made all that is seen and unseen to bring him honor and glory. That was his intention from the beginning. And here it is in the end now, coming full circle and full consummation of mankind Made in the image of God to do what? Oh, this is simple and it's so beautiful. To see and experience and receive the glory of God. And when I say glory of God, we talk about the value of God and the worth of God and the majesty of God. We see him and we experience that, that Shekinah glory that covered Moses when he went up on the mountain. And and as good image bearers, what do we do? We reflect that back. We receive the glory and we reflect it back by worship and honor and obedience and service. Just as God intended before the fall in Genesis 3, this is what the end will be like. And, I, and this, is not, this is not you becoming a robot. This is not you a puppet of God. You will, listen, 
In the new Jerusalem, in the presence of God, you'll be so overwhelmed by the glory of God, who he is, his absolute transcendent majesty, his pure holiness. You'll be so overwhelmed by what he's done looking at the new creation, all that he's made new. You'll be so overwhelmed by it that you will desire out of necessity to glorify him. You'll desire to pray to him and sing to him and praise his name. In fact, in the new Jerusalem, you'll have no other desire than that. It'll be that strong and that overwhelming. In other words, the new Jerusalem will be, in one sense, a, a universal, all mankind, Isaiah 6 moment. Right? Remember Isaiah chapter 6, the, the prophet is led into the throne room of God, and he sees God high and lifted up as, the tra- as his robe uh, tr- filled the train, the, the entire room. And he's so overwhelmed by it, and then God forgives him, and, and then he says, Lord, send me, I'll go. He doesn't even know what the mission is, but he's going to go. It's pure worship without hindrance. This is the picture that John is giving us. All mankind giving glory to God because he's worthy of that glory. I heard a father recently, I've heard this a few times in my life and each time it makes me cringe. There are certain things that probably make you cringe. This is one that makes me cringe. I heard a father recently taking credit for the new life that he and his wife, his words, created, their son. And, and he was, in a sense, bragging about the son that he and his wife made. He was boasting and taking glory for that which belonged to God. I mean, we believe that God is the giver and the taker of life. That son that came to life was because God brought that son to life. It's this type of thinking, this glory-taking rather than glory-giving, that, that is the foundation of why men walk in darkness today. Glory-taking rather than glory-giving. You see, darkness is the result of sin. We sin and therefore things get dark. And sin, at its most basic level, is denying God the glory he deserves. Darkness is the result of sin, and sin, at its most basic level, is saying, God, you don't get this glory, I'm going to take it. I'm going to make it mine. I'm going to strive to be glorified and be like God. And that means, my beloved, every sin, big or small, is an attempt to take glory away from God and take it for yourself. Every single sin. We always think of sin in terms of the cause and effect, right? I did a bad thing there. But ultimately, at the very base of it, you're doing something that God does not want you to do. You're thinking something God does not want you to think in order to receive glory for yourself. This father's comment that he created his own son It's obvious glory stealing. He said, that doesn't belong to you. You didn't create. God created. That's obvious. But every single sin, whether we like this or not, has a glory trail attached to it. Every single one. Instead of being satisfied in the garden, we know that Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit. And we know they did it because it was was pleasing to the eye. They thought it would make them wise. Ultimately, they believed Satan and thought that what? It would be like God. Right? They, they were stealing glory away from God. You're using, it's easy to talk about Adam and Eve, right? We like to blame them. You're using your time. Even that phrase, your time, is a difficult thing to say, isn't it? You're using your time primarily to advance your life and your personal agenda rather than using your time, which is a gift from God, to advance the kingdom of God, 
and magnify the name of Jesus Christ, that's glory stealing. It's glory stealing. When you neglect the very clear mutuality commands in Scripture to serve and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and instead you spend most of your time serving yourself, that's glory stealing. You steal glory. If, you don't, if we don't love one another rightly, we steal God's glory by, by not enabling those we serve to see God's work in us and by denying the sanctification process that God wants to do in us when we steal glory that way. When you lie to make yourself look good or get out of a bad situation, you, you steal glory by denying your father who is the father of what? Of truth, not lies. When you covet what you do not have, you deny God. You deny God the glory of being the one who satisfies your deepest joys, your deepest longings. When you engage in sexual morality or lust after a member of the opposite sex, you take glory as a consumer and you deny God the glory of you being what? Your brother's keeper of caring for those made in the image of God. Glory taking rather than glory giving, that's essentially living for oneself rather than living for God and others, is to walk in darkness. Jesus made that very clear. John chapter 3, verse 19, listen. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus made it very clear. He came to bring light, but we love sin. We love evil, and so we like cockroaches, when the light's turned on, we scatter to get back to the darkness. Thankfully, my beloved, in the new Jerusalem, there will be only light. Only light. Only the light of the glory of God on full display for us to experience and to enjoy. For God's people to receive and reflect back to him perfectly. That means in the new Jerusalem, there's, there'll be no more glory stealing. You're not going to try to take for yourself what belongs to God. All the pride, all the self-centeredness, all the greed that feeds our need to consume and consume more, especially here in the West, it will be no more. Instead, the light of God's glory will be so overwhelming and so captivating, there'll be, listen, there'll be no desire. In fact, you'll have no temptation to walk in darkness or glorify yourself or engage in sin. It will be completely erased from your heart and mind. It will be the glory of God that compels you to walk in eternity in the light. And it's the glory of God that should compel you to walk in that light right now. It's not like God flips a switch and suddenly you live very differently in the eternal realm. It's his glory that changes you. You're experiencing and seeing his glory. You will hate the thought of self-glorification. You will hate the thought of sin. You'll hate the thought of being tempted to it. And you'll hate it so much it won't exist in you as the new creature, creature that you are. The more we acquaint ourselves with who God is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do for his people, the more you do that, the more you draw near to God and experience his majesty and his beauty and his power and his goodness, the more you'll walk in the light. That's a real simple idea, right? And yet we're, we're not very good at it, especially in the West. We strive to walk in the light by our own willpower, by our own strength, by our own fortitude or our knowledge of the Word of God or Christianity. 
If you draw near to God, my beloved, and that's a much better approach than willpower. If you draw near to God, the Bible says he will draw near to you. If you say, I, w- I really want to know you. I want to I know you through your word. I want to I know you by, by praying fervently. I want to know you through my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to know you by serving you. I want to know you by reading good books. The more you do that, the more you see the glory of God, the more intimate you become with God, the more you will walk in the light right now. And even now, reflect well the glory he gives back to him and for the entire world to see. I want to encourage you if you are a I can do this on my own type of person. If, if you try for that fleshly willpower to walk in the light, you will walk in the darkness. Because even if you're successful at it, all it will do is what? Fuel pride. If you're successful at being obedient to God on your own, which you can't be, but if you think you are, see, you're going to go, well, wow, I'm pretty good at this. I don't need God. I don't need the Spirit. I don't need the Word. God's glory enables you to walk in the light and be obedient to him. Following the birth of my second son, Brandon, Lori and I, we had four miscarriages. And we thought that that was the end of our, our time having children. And we really, we wanted a big family. And then Lori got pregnant again. In our seventh pregnancy, we prayed probably more fervently than we had prayed previously. There was an expectation that we were younger, we were just going to have lots of kids. And we were wrong, obviously. And we pray, we say, God, please save this child. I'm going to try to say this without getting emotional. We pleaded that he wouldn't die. And God was so gracious. God, um, he answered our prayers and he brought Joshua, whom you know. Um, and one of the reasons that we named him Joshua, because Josh, Joshua, Yahshua, means the Lord saves. And so his, his name is a living testimony to the grace of God. Up to that point in time in my walk, I had never felt greater heights of joy and humility than in that delivery room. That, that sense of joy that God would be so gracious to answer our prayers and bring this life into our family and humility in knowing it was all God. It was Him who did this. And I... I realized in retrospect that I was getting a glimpse of the New Jerusalem. I was getting an opportunity in that delivery room as Joshua came into this world to experience the, what seemed like the unfettered mercy of God and the goodness of God and the fact that God would answer a sinner's prayer like mine and the, the full display of that glory, all Lori and I could do was cry and worship. And we were close to that picture of the new Jerusalem. Now, I know you say, wait, you already told us there'll be no more tears in heaven. And I believe that's true. There'll be no more tears from sorrow. But I have to believe, my beloved, there'll be tears and tears and tears of joy and gratitude that flow from the faces and the eyes of the saints forever and ever. I can't imagine a heaven where there aren't tears that are a product of God's glory and goodness for us. I can't imagine that. No more tears of sorrow, but certainly great tears of joy as God finally, once and for all and forever, is glorified and honored as He truly deserves. He deserves it. In the new Jerusalem, it will only be the glory of God. In the new Jerusalem, 
So we've seen thus far our relationship with God in, in the New Jerusalem will be shaped by one, your perfect access to God, which means you can stop trying so hard to be received and accepted now. You have access. You've been accepted by Christ. In one sense, you're, you're already fully in. You're already seated with God in Christ at the right hand in one sense. And we've also seen that knowing that you'll experience God's perfect glory then should draw you near to him now. And maybe the prayer is this, Lord, show me your glory now. Be like Moses and say, Lord, show me your glory. And he'll show you Christ. He'll show you the cross. He'll show you himself because he wants you to draw near to him so that you can walk in the light, so that you can live an obedient life to him, bringing him honor and glory. I got, I got one more point. I hope I haven't lost you yet. I want to show you God's perfect worshipers in the New Jerusalem, and that is the church. Point number three, God's perfect worshipers in this new city. Look at verse 27. But nothing, John writes, but nothing unclean will ever enter. It will never enter this city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. To enter the city of God is we see here was a metaphor of, of salvation. It's the equivalent of having eternal life. It's coming into his presence. And here, the city, as we saw last week, it's juxtaposed to the city of what? The city of Babylon. In Babylon, we know there was only unclean. There was only detestable. There was only that which was false. Now, we, we, we run that storyline, but Babylon has been destroyed. Babylon is no more. Here, in the city of God, those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. All those who what? All those who repented of being unclean, detestable, false people and put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them, they will be here. They will have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. They will be made clean, honorable, not detestable, true, not false. And they will be gathered here in the presence of God to worship God. In other words, those allowed to enter the city have been equipped by God to become what? Perfect worshipers of God. It's God who does that work in us to make us perfect worshipers of him forever. That word to be unclean, it means to defile. And we hear that today and we probably don't think of it in the right sense. In, in the context of, of the New Testament, it generally meant to make something that was sacred or holy common or ordinary um, I, I immediately would think of, of Jesus Christ when he went into the temple and the, the merchants were, were selling their goods and services. And what did he do? He cleansed the temple. That which was set apart for God's holiness, he cleansed by casting them out. When a Christian engages in sexual sin, we know from the Apostle Paul, it's a defiling of what? Of the body. It's a defiling of the temple of the Holy Spirit. That which God made holy by engaging in sexual sin, we defile and make common now, we know that nothing unclean was allowed inside the temple. You couldn't even get close to the holiest of holies if you were unclean. But the prophet Isaiah, again, centuries earlier, he saw not just this idea of the temple being a place of absolute purity and cleanliness, but the entire city of Jerusalem. Listen to Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 1, centuries before the writing of the apostle John. Isaiah said, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, speaking of Jerusalem. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. 
those who make the sacred common or ordinary. So no one, no thing that is unclean, no one who is detestable, and that word can also mean abomination. So it's strong, it's significant moral evil, and it's usually tied to sexual sin or idolatry. That's why Moses, before he let the people enter in, before he went to be with the Lord, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 12, talking about the danger of the idolatry of the Canaanites. He said, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, speaking of the idol worship of the Canaanites, for every detestable thing that the Lord hates that they, that, you, that they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire of their gods. So no detestable thing will come into the new Jerusalem. No unclean thing, no detestable person, and nothing that is false, no one that is false. You know, that's kind of an interesting term. Um, to live a false life usually was identified to practicing a false religion. It was worshiping someone or something other than the one true living God. So no one in the New Jerusalem will be unclean, detestable, or false. Only those who have been made pure by the blood of the Lamb. Only those who have been made fit, listen, to worship God in what? In spirit and in truth. Perfect worship. Those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life are prepared to worship God forever. You see, my beloved, and most of you know this, everyone, everyone worships. Everyone worships. You say, wait a minute, I have friends who are atheists, they don't worship. Oh, of course they worship. Right, to worship is to, to esteem or to value something, something or someone in your life. Right, and everyone values or esteems something or someone more than someone or something else. Everyone does this. Everyone gives their life to someone or something. Some, some worship their looks. That, that doesn't last long. Wait till you get old. Others worship their marriage. Some worship their children. Some their careers, degrees, portfolios, freedoms, you name it. We worship, we are wild at our idolatry um, and have been as creatures since the fall. Everyone starts off wrong in their worship. Everyone starts off worshiping someone or something other than the one true living God. The question is not where do you start your worship. The question is where do you end your worship in your life. We all start off wrong, but we don't want to all end wrong. And where you end in your worship, what you value, who you value most, who you ascribe glory to most, will be contingent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to know the end of your worship? As a worshiper, since we all worship, it is contingent upon your relationship to the Lamb of God. You remember what the Samaritan woman said to Jesus when they were having that glorious dialogue in John chapter 4 at the, at the well? She said to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem in the place is the place where people ought to worship. Listen to our Lord's answer. It's profound. He said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Speaking, of course, of the Holy Spirit coming and, and filling the church and, the, and God being worshipped throughout the world. And then ultimately, that new Jerusalem that will come. He said this, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And then he said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. Now listen to this. Latter part of verse 24. Three. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God the Father is seeking such people in spirit and truth to worship him now and worship him forever. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow, what a moment. She probably just fell over. The Messiah is talking to her face to face. Jesus came to tell us all things on true worship and eternal life. But even more so, my beloved, Jesus came to give us eternal life. It's not sufficient just to know about it. And that would actually be quite difficult, would it not, to know about eternal life but not be able to get eternal life? He came to teach us about true worship and eternal life and to give it to us through the cross. You see, the only way, and you know this, the only way you can be transformed from that unclean, detestable, false worshiper of God that you were, and by God's grace are not, the only way you can be transformed into a true worshiper of God, someone who worships God now in spirit and truth, and someone made fit to worship him in spirit and truth forever, was by Jesus Christ coming and doing the work of salvation. It was by him coming and, and, and living that perfect life of what? A perfect worship, a perfect glory giving, never seeking even, he's the son of God, he didn't seek glory for himself. He never uttered an unclean word, he never had not for a moment, an unclean thought. That's your destiny in Christ. He never engaged in any detestable act or deed. He never, he never engaged in any false worship of any kind. The perfect Savior, he lived the life that we were supposed to live before the fall. And he did that not just to, to be a great example for us. I know that's often the way that Jesus is portrayed as this great leader, this great example. And he is. He's the perfect example. But that's certainly not sufficient. When I look at Christ that way, apart from the gospel, then I become more discouraged. Here's this perfect man, and now I'm way down here. Before I saw Christ, I thought I was doing okay. Now I see Christ, and I realize I'm doomed. He lived the perfect life in your place. And then he ascended the cross and paid your penalty for being unclean and testable and false, for being a glory stealer rather than a glory giver to God. He, he did that so that those of us who were fully denied access to God now and forever could receive access to God. He did that out of his great love for you. He received the darkness that we deserved so that he who is the light of the world could bring us into his light so he could take us out of Babylon and we were all citizens of Babylon somewhere on that ledger your name was written citizen of Babylon he took us out of that out of the darkness into his light and he transcribed our names again in his own blood in the Lamb's book of life saved forever by my blood full access to God Full access to the glory. Full access to be a perfect worshiper of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit forever and ever. Amen, 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 amen. Let it be so. Right? We say amen, we say let it be so. Let it be so. I'll close with this question. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? We don't want to assume it. 
That would be a bad assumption. Will you be granted unfettered access to the majesty and glory of God? Will that be your end, your, your final end? It all comes down to worship. It all comes down to who or what you worship right now to answer that question. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Not what or who you say you worship. Right? We're, we're good at lip service. Right? James made that very clear, did he not, in James 1? We're good at lip service. But with your life, how you live, day to day, week after week, who or what do you value most? Who or what do you ascribe glory to most? You say, well, I, I really don't know. Gather people who know you well. Gather five or six people who know you well and, say, and ask them, in looking at my life, what do I value most? They're going to tell you. God, work, money, looks, popularity. They're going to tell you if they're going to be honest. And we all know it's not that hard to tell. Does your profession match your life? Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they've been born again. They've been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They have seen the glory of God, and they are captivated, captured. They don't want to go back. Is that you? Captivated and captured by the glory and love of God. Can you say, even though we fail daily, can you say, my desire, my deepest desire in life is to bring God honor and glory in all that I do? Can you say that? If you can, that's a great thing because that's the spirit in you. You say, I try, Pastor. I'm not talking about trying. We all try and we all fall short. We all need to be forgiven. But do you desire God's glory most? I pray so. I do. I pray you can say that with all sincerity and know that your name is written in that book. This is the great hope that is set before you. It's a picture of God and his people in this new Jerusalem. Only God can overcome your desperate need to be accepted and have access. Only God can, and he does that by saying, you've already been received and have full access through Jesus Christ, my son. Only God. Only God can overcome your desperate need for self-glory, and he can do that, and he does that by showing you his own glory. You see his glory, you'll realize your glory is nothing but foolishness. Only God can overcome your desire to worship false gods, and he does that by showing you his son, by showing you our beloved Savior, When your relationship with God is right, my beloved, everything else falls into place. When your relationship with God is not right, it's not right now, and it may not be right for eternity. Let's pray that God would take this vision of our perfect relationship with him in the new Jerusalem and use it to establish our course as a people from this day forward. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we are going to be like Moses. We're going to ask you simply to show us your glory. If you show us your glory, Father, as you have through Christ, as we know in your spirit, as you've revealed in your word, if you do that for us, individually and collectively as a body, then we will live transformed lives from this day forward. That course will be set. We will want, above all else, access into your throne room because we will want, above all else, to bring you honor and glory forever and ever. We will long for that. We will long to be true worshipers of you, the one true living God. You are worthy of it. You're the only one in your majesty and your perfection and your holiness and your goodness. You're the only one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Make us that people. Make us that church. What a light we will be in this dark place. Do it for our well-being, I pray, Lord. But as always, above all else, do it for your own glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.